Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everyone. This is Marty Oakley, the PPJ Gazette Online, and this is the DS Radio Network. That was the voice of Marty Oakley, who passed on April the 1st, 2023. She is, and will always be, the backbone of this program. She was a warrior and fought for those who could not fight for themselves. Rest in peace, Marty. Good evening. I'm Marcia Joyner, and this is Betrayed by Hospice. I hope everyone had a peaceful holiday season and a happy new year, and I pray that in 2024 it will be a better year for everyone. Thank you for joining us tonight for the beginning of our sixth year bringing these programs to you. Tonight we are going to discuss medical aid in dying, known as MAID, which has other terms as assisted suicide, right to die, death with dignity, or euthanasia. Whatever term you want to use, the premise is that it allows someone to end their life with someone else's assistance, a doctor, and potentially family members. Any way you look at it, one day you're alive, you talk to a doctor about dying, and then, well, then you're gone. It's really not that simple, and that's what we want to discuss tonight. Interesting that many who are in favor of MAID do not like the term suicide. I'll be honest, and the more I researched, I realized I would really have to limit my introduction to give my guest, Joy, a chance to talk. This is huge, and there is a lot of information out there. I would be remiss if I did not point out similarities and differences between MAID and hospice. So I will. The questions that came to my mind were, how safe is it? Is it painful? Is it a choice or an obligation? What are the requirements? Are there safety gates to keep someone from abusing the system and killing others at their convenience? What are the ethical and spiritual concerns? What drugs do they use? Are they still experimenting with drugs? Isn't assisted suicide and euthanasia the same thing? What about my rights to end my life as I see fit, my body, my choice? How is this different from hospice? We will discuss these and many more tonight during our discussion. I believe you should know the facts before you make decisions and not believe what you were told. Knowledge is power. MAID is openly advertised in Canada and appears to be offered as a solution to all of your problems. Initially, just like hospice, It started for those who had a terminal illness and death was imminent within six months. But, just like hospice, the criteria has been watered down to include someone with an illness that can be treated, someone that can no longer take care of themselves. In the case of MAID, it could be you have dementia or you're depressed, homeless, broke, or you have pain that a doctor will no longer give you medication. That happened last year. And in Canada, starting in March of this year, those with mental disabilities qualify. But who will sign for them if they have a mental disorder? Since my guest, Joy Seguin, is from Canada, she will go into more detail. Since I'm in the United States, I want to briefly talk about what's going on here. There are 10 states plus the District of Columbia that have legalized Maine, California, Colorado, Hawaii, Maine, Montana, New Jersey, New Mexico, Oregon, Vermont, and Washington. 
1989, Oregon brought up the bill for death, and it passed in 1997. That was the beginning. In the present, May of 2023, Vermont became the first state to allow non-residents to have access to Maine, with Oregon becoming the second in June of 2023. And I believe most of you may remember Jack Kevorkian, known as Dr. Death, who in November of 1998 videotaped the death of Thomas York, who had Lou Gehrig's disease. He submitted the tape to CBS, and it was viewed on 60 Minutes. During his tenure, he helped kill, commit suicide, 100 people. In March of 1999, Dr. Death was convicted of second-degree murder and served eight of his 10- to 25-year sentence, released for good behavior. He died at the age of 83 in June 2011 with kidney failure, not suicide. But how things have changed over the years, for good or bad, you need to understand both sides. So while people deliberate if made is a safe option, Hospice operates with impunity and euthanizes patients under the guise of compassionate care every day, and the government and people look the other way, and some have no clue. Now, I believe there are omissions with MAID, but at least you know the end result is death sooner than a natural death. Hospice is riddled with lies, deception, and manipulation. My personal thoughts on MAID? Why do we need it when we have hospice? So if somebody goes to the doctor, they make a conscious decision to have help to commit suicide. Hopefully they are given the facts. They made the choice. They weren't forced by anyone. The process will begin. Whether you or I believe this should or shouldn't be, they made a decision. They may or may not go through it. But someone who enrolls into hospice is not saying, I want you to help me die sooner. But that's what's happening, and that makes hospice staff complicit of murder without consent, period. So supporters of assisted suicide believe it is up to the individuals to decide their death, not the government or religious institutions in their ideologies. They say they want autonomy and death with dignity and have the right to choose how much pain they want to endure and for how long. They should be able to end their life on their own terms, and the cost of staying alive outweighs the benefits. They argue, when applied judiciously and empathetically, that it can be a relief for the terminally ill and their loved ones who bear the burden of taking care of a terminally ill person in their final days. On the other side, those against assisted suicide argue the practice devalues human life, it is unethical, and it goes against religious beliefs. What if the doctor made a mistake and the person could live several more years or they go into remission? Patients might refuse potentially life-saving treatments and opt to die out of fear of being a burden to their family, or they may be pressured into ending the life by others. The slippery slope or they are depressed or have a mental illness that may respond to treatment. And what about the Hippocratic Oath, do no harm? Doctors are being asked to violate that promise. As you can see, this is a very controversial, and both arguments have some merit. But in the end, each person will decide for themselves. 
Clearly, it is a Pandora's box dilemma with both sides passionate about their views. And this debate will continue over ethical, legal, and moral implications. But won't we all be disabled to some degree during our lifetime and will actually meet the criteria for hospice or made? It's better to have the facts before we get there. The biggest issue I see besides moral is that someone else makes a decision to end someone's life for personal gain, monetary, or just simply not wanting to deal with an elder parent, a disabled adult, or a child, or someone is depressed and just doesn't want to live anymore. It's the slippery slope that should scare everyone. So can made be stealth euthanasia or social cleansing, getting rid of people who are a burden to the government's finances? We've seen it with hospice. Is that inconceivable? Later in the program, if we have time, I will go into the requirements, some statistics, specific drugs used, and other information. Those who follow my program may recall Dr. William Toffler's program that aired on March the 16th, 2022, and heard him explain the drugs being used and the complications. I'll post that interview for next Wednesday as a repeat for those who haven't heard. I think after hearing about the experimental drugs being used and possible complications, you might change what you thought you knew. Tonight, my guest is Joy Seguin, who lives in Ontario, Canada. She is a mom of Andre, a young adult man with autism and developmental disability, which has required Joy to advocate for him his whole life. She has also taken care of several senior family members, and it is through these trials and tribulations that led her to write her first book, Is Advocating a Crime? Trust Everyone, Trust No One, which came out in February of 2023. If you're on the link listening, you will see the book scrolling by. She exposes the injustice of care provided in facilities and offers resources and strategies to speak up and do the right thing with confidence in the face of adversity. One reader stated in his review, Joy describes similarities between seniors and the disabled and how today's care facilities are not much different than the past asylums and institutions how medical assistance in dying is today's social cleansing, and how the power of your voice can influence change. She describes trespass orders and visitation restrictions in an effort to silence family advocates and avoid accountability. I know all of us have faced this in some way with our stories. Join me in welcoming Joy to our program to hopefully give you more insight and what you can do to help and protect yourselves and your loved ones. So, Joy, thank you for coming on tonight with us, and hopefully we have lots of listeners who will get uh, an earful tonight. Oh, I have no doubt they'll get an earful. (laughs) Thank you for inviting me. I much appreciate it. I think it's really important work that you're doing, and it's important that we spread the message across every country it's yes. spreading like a pandemic. <laughs> it is, and, and nobody is immune from it. Nobody. So, and with very – Tell me – Go ahead. Okay, I wanted you to tell me, um, with Andre, 
um, how you became involved in advocating, and this is very personal for you. It, it is very personal. Um, I've always advocated for my, my son uh, since he was diagnosed with autism, um, and it just has continued. It has to continue. It's never getting easier. It's always getting more difficult, it seems, because of the culture that we're living in. Um, made really affected me deeply. Um, about a year ago, I attended a webinar because I heard rumors that made medical assistance in dying in Canada uh, was not only for the terminally ill. And I thought that can't be. So I attended a webinar and uh, uh, professionals, families, advocates, people with disabilities, uh, the United Nations on Disabilities was there. I couldn't believe what I was hearing. My, it was jaw-dropping because by the end of that webinar, I realized my son fit the criteria. He fit the criteria in that he didn't have to be terminally ill. He had a disability. He was lacking support and services. He was literally homeless. And that was a criteria for my son to be able to apply for MAID. Now, in 2016, in Canada, only applicants with a disability whose death was imminent qualified for medical assistance in dying. Five years later, in 2021, my Canadian federal government expanded the MAID criteria to include people with disabilities whose death is not imminent. Right. I couldn't believe it. Now, since the new legislation was applying made in Canada without a terminal illness, there were more than 200 deaths in 2021. The numbers have more than doubled in Canada in 2022 that were not reasonably foreseeable. Now, that blew my mind. The loss of ability to engage in a meaningful activity was the most commonly cited source of suffering by individuals requesting MAID. And that's a large number. That can be a very big number. Oh, yes. Now, <laughs> further to this webinar, that wasn't bad enough when I realized my son fit the criteria. In March of 2023, MAID was expanded to include people with mental illness. Now, this timeline was placed on hold until this coming March, and it looks like it's going to go ahead. Um, the legislation clearly indicates that mental health or having a disability cannot be the sole reason to apply for medical assistance in dying. There has to be other reasons or conditions. And those include lack of housing, lack of supports and services, lack of accessibility. Those should not be reasons to apply for MAID. Now, my son, he, he fits the criteria. Now, he can't talk. He, he has no verbal language. He has the developmental age of a toddler. So he cannot give consent. 
he is incapable of giving consent. But what people need to realize is I, as his legal guardian, I can provide consent for medical assistance in dying for my son to stop his mm-hmm. suffering and his lack of quality of life. Okay. Now, because I am his legal guardian, I can do that. Would I do it? No. There was a, a recent uh, incident that happened a couple of weeks ago where the thought went through my head, and I'm beating myself up over that. We had an appointment with a specialist for some gastro issues that he has. And uh, a year and a half ago, a specialist assured me that he would get down to figuring out what is wrong with, with him. It's serious. He has some major attacks, and it's really sad and hard to, to, to witness. So a week before Christmas, we had an appointment for a follow-up. The specialist tells me that my son was too complicated and could no longer help my son. I asked, do you have a referral? Do you know anybody who is willing to maybe look into this? The answer I was given was nope. He and I didn't want to be bothered. Eyes. Didn't want to be bothered. Mm-hmm. Now you're telling me there's no specialist in the province of Ontario, Ontario, that would be willing to entertain looking and helping my son? Nope. So he and I locked eyes, and honestly, I really wanted to choke him for leading me to believe that he cared, that he was wasting Mm -hmm. a year and a half of my time. Of course, you know, I was feeling quite defeated, and at that moment, the thought occurred to me to ask him if he'd be willing to help me apply for MAID. And you know what? I have no doubt that he would probably would have said yes. Oh, yeah. I chose. Yeah. You know, and I had the power. I had the power at that moment to let live or die. I choose to let live. How many families under duress of similar circumstances like mine will opt to end the suffering for their disabled family member rather than continue a journey of challenges Obstacles, financial distress, emotional and physical breakdown. People with disabilities and their families are trying to survive in this ableist and oppressive world. It's unimaginable. And unfortunately, you know, we're like, we are the minority. We are literally the Davids fighting the Goliaths. And I don't exactly. think people realize how this is affecting our people with disabilities. And our seniors, once they turn, uh, once they go to a long-term care facility and they have any type of cognitive impairment, they are considered disabled. And they, too, qualify for medical assistance in dying. Now, my concern is we all know that there are a lot of dysfunctional families out there who are looking to speed up Uh, the death of a loved one for financial gain. I worry that seniors will be manipulated. I worry that people like my son who can talk, you know, people who are developmentally challenged, 
will be manipulated into medical assistance in dying. And it's not something that I'm dreaming of. This is happening already in Canada. Well, and that's, you know, that's the reason that, you know, we're doing this program to let people know what is happening, what the process is, and what you, you know, you have one set of this is what you're told, but what about the this is not what you're told? I mean, that's the most frightening part is, you know, you go in there thinking I'm a burden to my family or um, it's the gentleman that was in Canada, I think it was a year ago, and he was in pain and he was being given opioids for his pain of his legitimate disease, and the doctor said, I'm not going to give you any more pain medicine. His option was to live in excruciating pain or die. He chose death because he was and we have a, in that yes. much pain. And we have a, yeah, we have a young uh, woman in Ontario uh, who, had a chemical aller- who had chemical allergies, and she couldn't find appropriate housing or an apartment that would be sort of fragrance-free and chemical-free. You know how they spray the, the carpets, you know, in apartment buildings. Mm-hmm. And they approved medical assistance in dying for her rather than find her the proper housing. She chose death, and it was approved. Wow. Well, and that, that brings up, you know, the, which the homeless. I mean, there are a lot of homeless that are out on the streets, and they don't have the ability, and, and a lot of them have mental disorders, and, you know, they can't really fend for themselves. They're just out on the street. They are also, you know, could, that could happen, but they're not going to be going to a doctor. So somebody else, you know, may take them and, you know, if you're not literate, you sign on the dotted line. And who's really checking to see if someone is competent and can sign that? And when somebody goes in, if you have an illness and, and you're in a great deal of pain and your death is imminent, I still don't, me personally, I don't believe in going in and telling somebody to kill me. And, again, I say hospice does that, so why do we need maid? But if you do go in there and you make that decision because you do have, a, you know, cancer and you are, you know, riddled with pain, then, you know, maybe, you know, and I hate to say that, but, you know, maybe that's a compassionate thing. If you go in and you're given something that, you go to sleep, you go home, you take, you go to sleep. But that's not how simple this process is. And that's one of the things in my research that that I found that it's not that simple. Um, the drugs that they use, they continually change them because the drugs that they were getting from actually a Canadian company, um, they no longer had that drug was no longer available, and it went from 200 to 3,000. And so they quit producing it, so they had to change what drugs they were using. And that secobarbital was one of those drugs oh that slows the brain's activity. And so they had to change. So they've constantly been changing the drugs, which, 
you know, I'll get into that in a, in a few minutes, but it's not a bed of roses. It isn't like um, Soylent Green. I don't know if you watch, have seen Soylent Green, um, where Edward G. Robinson goes plays the part of Saul, and he decides, you know, that uh, you know, I've seen it. You know, my life is over. I really don't want to deal anymore with the way the world is. And he goes in, tells him he wants to hear, you know, Mozart and or you know Bach and lays down he wants to see a field of daisies he lays down they inject something in him and he goes to sleep and it just seems so peaceful that's not what medical assistance in dying is they're they're going to give you, know, you, you the medication a, you make a very good point there and i was uh, reading an article the other day and uh, by dr matthew dore and he was mentioning the lack of data that's associated with assisted suicide and the complications that seem to be considered as unknown. And, for example, in Oregon, 67% of all patients were recorded as unknown. Now, if there were complications with only 9.3% were recorded as having complications. In Canada, my government acknowledges complications, doesn't say what they are, but there's no data. It's not recorded. So this is what Dr. Matt calls an evidence-free zone. I think we need to know what that evidence is. We need to let people know what are the ramifications of this concoction that they're giving to our loved ones because I think mm-hmm. they're not, like you say, they're not dying in peace. Many of them, it seems like more than what we think, are suffering in medical well, assistance in dying. Yeah, and I mean, it just is the unknown um, because they keep changing what drugs that they're giving because they don't have it, you know, set down. You know that, you know, if somebody's going to go under surgery, that you're going to give them, you know, Propofol, and then they're going to go to sleep, and then you're going to do your surgery, and then you're going to bring them up out of that. But with this, you don't know what that's going to be. You don't know what the complications are. No, and, and they don't know. And if they do know, they're not recording it. They're not providing the data. And that because they don't, know, they don't necessarily do want you to know. Exactly. Yes. Yes. So I yes. have... Yeah, you know, um, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, the question almost needs to be asked, you know, why is all of this really happening? Why are they seemingly hiding the data? Why are they expanding criteria that seem to be affecting just a marginalized population? It sounds almost as though, to me, it almost sounds like social cleansing. We're going back in history here. Yes, exactly. They're trying to get rid of the weak and the vulnerable because Mm -hmm. it is a burden on economics and it's pressure on the politicians. 
And and the bottom line is, as we always know, it saves money. Saves money. It it costs more to care for someone than it does to give them drugs and eliminate. And some of the drugs, like I was saying about Dr. William Toffler, he's from Oregon, and some of the drugs are the same drugs that they use when they, in the prisons, when they, you know, kill somebody. And we know that doesn't always work well. Uh, It doesn't. And some of the reports have been that when they did an autopsy later, they found that the individual did not have enough of the um, anesthesia in their body to perform surgery. So you know that they felt all this. And, I mean, there's a big difference between someone who, you know, is being killed because they murdered somebody and somebody who just goes in and says, you know, I don't want to live anymore. And and the thing is the some of the agents that they give them are paralytic, so it keeps them from being able to move their muscles and to show any stress. So the family doesn't see any, you know, twitching or, you know, maybe they, you know, want to let you know, I mean, hey, you know, I'm in a lot of pain. But you don't know that, and, and that is what you're saying. It's the unknown. There's not data on that. No, there isn't. No, no, no. And, and you know, I, I find that the potential for manipulation is too great, just too great. You know, when they start to expand a criteria for people with mental illness, um, who in their lifetime, who of us, have not experienced in our life depression or who of us mm-hmm. have not at some time in life thought, oh, gosh, I just want to call it a day, give up. We've all done it. We've all gone through it. We've all had those thoughts. We never maybe acted on them, but we thought right. of it. And if somebody at that moment in time says to you and encourages you, well, look, you know what? Have you ever considered medical assistance in dying? You're suffering. You're sad. You don't have housing. You can't get help. Don't you just want to end it all? Yeah. Right. Like, no, that's when we as humans with compassion must stand up and help protect these people, but we're, our friends, we're our family, we're supposed to we're be. We're supposed yes. to be. We should yeah. be. We so I want be. to, um, the, the drugs that they're using, I kind of want to give people an idea on that. So um, they keep changing the drugs, as I was telling you while I go, that they, let's get my paper here that tells me this. So there's something now that New Jersey and Oregon use it. So this, all the states don't even use the same drugs. They use what's called DDMA, diazepam, digoxin, morphine sulfate, and amitriptyline. That's what they use. Then you have um, Colorado and Hawaii use diazepam, digoxin, morphine sulfate, propranol, and... D.C. and Maine and Vermont, they don't even say what drugs they use. They don't even tell you. So you think 
that, you know, that the process, you're going to go in and you're going to be given these drugs. But this one lady had said, talked about her aunt's experience, and I, I want to read that to our people. This is her experience of her aunt's assisted suicide. The full cocktail included two anti-nausea pills, an anti-seizure pill, and 100 capsules of secobarbital. It all had to be ingested within an hour. My attention turned to the kitchen table where my husband and sister, wearing latex gloves, frantically scraped the powder from 100 capsules with toothpicks trying to beat the clock. The mountain of powder we poured into more sugar syrup created a half cup of sludge so bitter it literally burned my tongue. And my aunt, who could barely swallow water, had to drink all of it in less than five minutes to ensure success. When we sat back down at the table, white powder everywhere, we all had to wonder, who in the hell wrote this law? We had been forced to assist in the most bizarre fashion, jumping through seemingly random legal hoops and meeting arbitrary deadlines while my aunt suffered, and finally emptying capsules, making an elixir so vile I cried when I knew she had to drink it. This was death with dignity. And and there is no guarantee, and like you said earlier, that the evidence is not there. These statistics are not there. And you don't know that the drugs that they're using consistently bring about a quick death. And time time to death after ingesting seems highly unpredictable. And let's see, it says that they range in Oregon since 2001, time from drug ingestion to death has ranged from one minute to 108 hours. 33% of the total deaths with recorded data have taken over an hour and 7.6 over six hours. Time to death has become longer since the introduction of experimental drug cocktails, the DDMA and the DDMP that I just told you about. The median time has doubled since 2005. So it's not without terror, pain, and horror when you go through this. Now, I know a lot of my listeners lost loved ones to hospice and had to go through the pain of losing that person. But this, it, this is horrible. It's inhumane. It's inhumane. And why we're experimenting on our vulnerable people, our loved ones, our family members, unbeknownst to us, really. I mean, the more knowledge we have, we have to start looking into this. We have to start asking questions. Right. We can't just take everything at face value and, and, and trust these professionals. There, there's, there's, my understanding is there's money in this, too. There's a lot of money to be made in killing our people. Well, there is. I mean, you know, you've got the pharmaceutical. But what about the doctors who have signed a Hippocratic Oath 
to do no harm. And there have been many doctors who don't want to do this. I mean, they're like, no, I signed an oath. I'm I'm not going to do this. What about those doctors that are being forced to have to do it? It's, you know, it's unethical to make somebody do something that goes against their beliefs or goes against an oath that they signed. Now, that's not to say that there aren't some doctors, and obviously, you know, you have hospice doctors and nurses who are doing, you know, committing heinous crimes, but to force somebody, you know, like we had Delta Hospice, um, Angelina Ireland, in Canada, and, you know, they shut them down because they refused to euthanize their patients. And, you know, that's a concern because... I just found that out recently that um, you don't, the person doesn't have to give consent. You can have a nurse, a doctor give consent on behalf of the patient. Even group home providers, long-term care facilities can give consent on behalf of the patient. That's a scary, that's very scary. Without, medical, without a medical power of attorney being written? without a medical power of attorney. Wow. So it's not a yes. matter of that, and that they... That's in, that's in our legislation. People aren't aware of it, but it's clearly stated there that a nurse, a doctor, a, care, uh, a caseworker, a social worker, a family member, um, a care facility can provide consent and apply for medical assistance in dying. For a person, um, as long as they meet the criteria, or just because they well, well they have who dementia. Does, who in a group home doesn't meet a criteria? First of all, they have yeah, a disability. True. They have lack true. of supports and services. Their quality of life isn't there. They can't provide recreation for them. They can't get them out to anything. They they fit the criteria. It's a very, it's not a very strict criteria. <laughs> Well, no, they've watered it down over the years. Oh, my so goodness, I guess let me so. ask you, uh, let me switch a little bit here. On um, the book, when you wrote your book, now, that was because of what was going on with your son, or you were also dealing with, um, you know, an elder uncle and, you know, other people, but you ran into them not wanting you to advocate for them. Absolutely, yes, yes. Uh, I wrote my book, it really, I started in 2016 thinking about it uh, because, you know, like most hospices or care facilities, group homes, the care of the patient determines on the management at the time. And we had new management team at my son's, with my son's service provider, and I knew it was going to go downhill. <laughs> my relentless questions for concerns for my son's well-being led to his service provider being giving us visitation restrictions. That's how it started. And then unlawful trespass orders. And ultimately, an unlawful eviction. After living in his group home for over 20 years, literally dropping off my son at our doorstep without a phone call or an email, 
So now both my husband and I had to leave our employment to care for my son 24-7. Now, when the pandemic happened in 2020 and it exposed the atrocities that were happening, you know, in the care homes, in the care facilities, long-term care and retirement homes, uh, the military exposed it for Canada, across Canada. But this is something that families have been have been yelling and screaming about for decades prior to the military exposing what happened to, to our, our loved ones. When I saw that there was a lot of awareness with our seniors in long-term care, but there wasn't much about group homes. And these things were happening in group homes too. So I thought, you know what, this is the time to write the book and mention about the similarities between long-term care homes, retirement homes, and group homes. Because what's happening to our seniors is happening to our people with developmental disabilities. And it was an opportunity to try and hope, you know, to inform and enlighten my fellow Ontarians, maybe even Canadians, and maybe even my U.S. friends about why they should care about what is happening and what isn't happening to their loved ones when they are in a care facility. That's the main reason I wrote my book. And it's just, it's tragic that, you know, some people don't even have anybody to advocate for them. You know, Marcia... Fortunately, your son yeah, did. You're absolutely right. Yeah, because I'll give you an example. You know, I mean, in my son's uh, service provider, they had approximately in my city, let's say, 60 families, 60 individuals who were residing in residential group homes. Of those 60 individuals, there were five families who were actively involved. Five out of 60. Now, of those five, what happened to our family happened to four other families before us. So, you know, if you try to eliminate the families who are actively involved, asking the questions, trying to get these care facilities to be accountable, they're going to try to eliminate you (laughs) because it's easier to deal with the people who have no family, who have no advocates. Now, in our right, case, because very, nobody's you know, going to argue. Nobody's going to fight with them. You know, nobody's going to make them accountable. So it works for them. Now, in, in previous cases of other families that this happened to, they didn't have legal guardianship of their loved one. Because when a person in Ontario or Canada here, I don't know about the United States, <clears throat> when a person with developmental disability turns 18 years old, the family has no rights. They can't speak on behalf of their adult loved ones. Whether that adult, like my son, can speak or not, I would not be able to advocate for him and make decisions for him. It would be the care facility. If now, he in was our in case, one. we had, and he was for 20 years. Right, right, right. We had legal but, guardianship, you know. Yeah, but once you pull so him out, we didn't pull him out. He was dropped off. Right, <laughs> and right. You know, he was evicted. He was literally evicted 
because his parents were asking questions. And rather than deal with with that, they decided to drop him off. Um, the other families... There is no recourse? Well, yes. Um, they thought that they had the right to discharge without notice. Uh, they found out that they did not have that right. We were the only family in Ontario to um, bring a service provider to task. We, and it was ruled by the Divisional Court, Supreme Court of Ontario, that what they did was wrong. So now all service providers in Ontario must follow the Residential Tenancy Act. So that which says, there's been good that has come out of this, which says that you have to give them due process. If you're going, you can't evict a tenant, like my son, for example. You can't evict a tenant because his parents or family is asking questions. You can't okay. evict we, somebody else. Speaking, yeah, we, speaking of questions, we have somebody um, calling in that has a question. So let cool. me see what their question is. Okay, 651, you're live and on the air. You have a question? Hi, thank you. Yeah, I do. Hi, Marcia. Good evening. This is Kimberly calling from Minnesota. Hi, how are you doing, Kimberly? I'm good, thank you. Joy, um, a pleasure to meet you. And uh, I, I have not um, uh, read your book yet. I do have it on my table. It's, it's on my reading list to do. And I, I just want to thank you so much for your advocacy. And, you know, if I could just share with you, um, my mom was a Canadian, and she came to the States many, many years ago. And Marcia knows my mom's story, but briefly she was euthanized in a facility in St. Paul, Minnesota. And my mother never believed in made what it came into being. She was shocked and what transpired and how, you know, she ended up at the hospice where they euthanized her. I was just shocked. But I'm just wondering, what could we do as, as U.S. citizens to help our, our fellow Canadians? And I do still have family back in many provinces in Canada. What would you suggest, ma'am? What, what could we do? How can we speak out? How can we continue to be advocates for, for everyone who, who is, is under, you know, health care um, you know, scrutiny in, in both countries. Kimberly, I'm, I'm so sorry what you went through. Thank you. Thank you, First of all, I'm really sorry about that. Um, and, you know, if you really did, you know, if you want to help, there is a website called EPC. It's called Euthanasia mm-hmm. Prevention Coalition. And on that website, there's a petition that anyone can sign with supporting the reversal of the Canadian government's decision to permit MAID for mental illness that is expected mm. to start in March. There's yes, a, a, a tab that you can click on. Yes. And okay, um, you. you can sign that petition. It doesn't matter what country you're from. Wonderful. It just takes a minute, and the more the merrier. You know, Patricia, that uh, Patricia. Kimberly, that would be good to maybe put in our group and yes. see if we can get some more signatures on that. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, um, yeah. I, I think I should with you enjoy um, here in Minnesota, we have um, our House and Senate legislators are beginning early February are debating an assisted um, assistance in medical aid and dying bill in our states and in Minnesota. And it's it's as as stringent as laws in Oregon and other states across the country. I'm, and there's a caveat in the law written in by legislators who are pro euthanasia advocates um, <clears throat> that have stated that no one who is a patient in a hospital once you're presented with these forms can deny it. You must sign it. If you don't, 
you will be fined and you will be charged and you will be put in jail. Now, this is just, it's unbelievable that I read that kind of verbiage in this, in this legislative Whoa. bill. Yep. Wow. Wow. Jeez. And, and you know, Kimberly, I think the Senate's not, not much different than our, M, uh, our M member of parliament, for example. You know, if we got to contact our elected officials. We have to mm-hmm. let them know that this is not okay. And I have mm-hmm. learned through the years that if our elected officials don't hear from you and me, for example, then the concern does not exist in their riding or in their area. They can yeah, ignore it. They know it's happening, but they can ignore it. So we've yeah. got to start emailing our elected officials, call them, meet with them, let them know that this is not okay. Yeah, you're absolutely correct. And it doesn't matter whether you're in hospice, whether you're in a board and care home, whether you're in a, hosp- in a nursing home facility or in a hospital setting. It just, you know, and I, you know, I, I did send some emails as, as this bill started to bring, you know, to light um, early part of uh, last year, and I only got two responses, two of which said, don't bother us, we believe in this, and um, one that said, well, I'm on the fence about it. And, and that's what I got out of 25 emails. So until it happens yeah, to them, I, I don't think... Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Keep following up, Kimberly. Keep following up. You know, once a month even, mark it on your calendar and resend and say, you know, I sent this email. Keep forwarding the same email. That's a great idea. I do it all the time. I do it all the time. (laughs) And then I'll say, you know what, it's been three months now. I thought I'd get back to you and see what's the status. What do you think about blah, blah, blah. Yeah, I keep doing it. Mm, Persistence, absolutely. Kimberly, are you emailing it to Minnesota? To yes, the, I am. To people in Minnesota. Okay. Because I yes, found I um, at one point when we were trying to stop, you know, made from or assisted suicide from going into other states, we actually went to other states and were writing emails. And they would come back, the emails I got back were, if you are not a member of this state, you need to talk yeah. to your state. And they refused to accept an email from a constituent from another state. Yes, I've had yes. that experience. Which, which I kind of understand, but globally, they need to understand that this is not something we approve of. No, and that's very true. We like don't. With, yeah, and if with hospice, if you did not make an issue, you know, it doesn't mean we're going to get investigations. We know nobody's going to investigate mm-hmm. it. But here's the thing. No. If you didn't go and you didn't make that complaint, and if sometime, you know, in the future they came up and they said, okay, well, how many complaints have we had about hospice? Oh, we've mm-hmm. had 160, you know, over 15 years, you know, out of thousands of people, only 160 people bothered to write, hey, my mom was murdered by hospice. So the onus is on us, even though we, you know, you know, you're not going to get an investigation. You still have to rattle the chain. Yeah, and and you know that I tried, and the latest, the latest, um, yeah, yeah, Yeah. absolutely. And I just, if I could, just, I don't want to. Marcia, you're right. And Kimberly, I have no doubt you try, and it's discouraging and it's disheartening, Mm -hmm. but keep doing it. Keep doing it. Absolutely. I will look your page. And remind them, you know, sometimes, you know, we have to remind them that your loved one has friends, family, Mm -hmm. acquaintances, extended families who are voters. Uh 
Good point. But you know Good what, point. what's depressing, too, is if you reached out to your friends in Minnesota, um, mm-hmm. And even reaching out to the group, you know, to say, hey, you know, Minnesota, you know, we're we're trying to do this, all of those opposed, here's the email to write. And, and maybe yeah. some in the group who are from Minnesota would actually write it. Because if we don't get the word out that it's going on, because I didn't realize that Minnesota was coming up on that. So It is. It you is. Know, yep, absolutely. Yes. Mm-hmm. So we get the word out, even in the group and, you know, with your friends, because other people may not know that Minnesota is considering this. And, you know, and I still go back to why do we need MAID if we have hospice? Hospice is doing the same thing. They're killing our loved ones with opioids, with antipsychotics, with anxiety medication. I mean, they're doing it every single day. They are, absolutely. And and that's and as you know, Marcia, and Joy, with my mother, I mean, she was medicated with narcotics, benzodiapines, uh, sedatives, and other medications um, 24-7. She never complained of pain. She wasn't in an active state of dying when she was admitted to the hospice as a newly, a newly diagnosed cancer patient. I mean, it was horrific to watch. It just And she know, was opioid it, naive, I believe. She was, and she also has, and she was also hypersensitive to medications and had allergies. Yes. And Joy, they okay. dropped her to the floor, and they gave her medication she was allergic to. Mm-hmm. Right. No concern. Terrible. Oh my goodness. No. no? Yeah. And you know, and if you ask the questions, you ask for a list, you ask what it's for, you often don't get a straight answer, or you got to talk mm-hmm. to a doctor, and try to talk to a doctor. Oh, yeah. Doctor never calls back. Mm, who doesn't appear? Who doesn't show up? Yeah, very true. Very true. Well, this will help yeah. them breathe. They're anxious, so we had to give mm-hmm. them this. Well, they're they're in pain. They say they're not in pain. If you look at the medical records, it says patient said not in pain or no noticeable pain, but yet they gave them morphine and more Ativan. Correct. Around the clock, as you say. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And Aldol. And Spiridone and everything. And, you know, if you couldn't see the reports and know that that was murder, it's because nobody wants to investigate it. They don't want to see it. They want to turn a blind eye because it's saving money. And they are given impunity to do what they do day in, day out. Exactly. But, and that's, you're right, Marcia, because even with our Canadian medical assistance in dying legislation, the criminal code has been changed so that doctors will not be criminally charged for, nobody can just put a criminal charge against them for anything. Our criminal right. code was changed. Right. <laughs> well, they did the same oh, thing you know, here after I, COVID. They changed the law that said that nursing homes hospitals, nobody could be held accountable for a person dying when they came in there or if they were in the hospitals or the nursing homes, they could not be held accountable for patients dying. They can't even part blanche. And I believe that still stands. So there, there are... You know, there are no consequences, and it goes back to cleansing. It is social cleansing. It is no different than what was happening in the Holocaust. We're getting rid of the disabled and the elderly. Mm -hmm. They are considered useless feeders, and they don't want 
to take care of them anymore. I don't want to believe that. I really don't want to believe that. But I have a saying, you know, if it walks like a duck, quacks like a right. duck, it's probably a duck. It's a duck. Exactly. And, and people exactly. with rose-colored glasses that you want to see the best and you want to believe that they're compassionate, you need to take those glasses off and see the reality because all of us are getting older and we're all mm-hmm. going to be in that situation, you know, where, you know, your husband, you know, I mean, many of us have already lost our parents, but, you know, your spouse, your children, you know, and the, the brain death thing that, you know, people try to convince somebody they're, you know, that they're brain dead, they don't give them enough time for the brain to recover. It, we have become an inhumane society that just, you know, animals take better care in many of their offsprings and their animals than humans are doing with other humans. It's true, Marcia. You're absolutely correct. It's just it's a tragic absolutely. statement. But, you know, I, I'm just I'm just I'm just heartsick that this is happening in Canada. Like I said, my mom would would have never agreed to this. I'm I'm just I'm I'm shocked that. Our beloved Canada has come to this. It's. I'm sorry. It's. It's a medical holocaust. It really is. It is. It's a global medical and, holocaust. Yeah, and, and, and you know, I'm, I'm, very, I'm not very proud of this. You know, of my Canadian government. Um, mm-hmm. I've been trying to contact my member of parliament here. You know, in my area, and I've not mm-hmm. gotten even a, uh, an automatic reply. <laughs> but I'm going to keep after him. Good. Good. I'm going to let him know this is not okay. I mean, March is mm-hmm. coming up, and um, I know it's going to go through. I have, I'll be surprised if it doesn't. I hope it doesn't go through. I really do. Mm-hmm. I hope it doesn't go through. Uh, for, what does Alex say? Mental health well, I, I got he, 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 When you talk to Alex, what did he say? Well, he has the petition out, and he's trying to get this petition um, into the government to stop it, you know, reverse their decision. Mm-hmm. I, I really don't – I hope they do reverse the decision. I just really don't feel confident that they will. And I think we're going to see a lot um, more people. Yeah, people dying. need to speak up, and, and they don't care what the people are saying. Um, Kimberly, there was um, – Sarah Burns was um, – Busha. I'm sorry, Sarah Busha. She – was the um, head of Euthanasia Coalition, Coalition Prevention in the USA, but mm-hmm. she's not now, and I'm I'm not sure who has replaced her. But that's something, and you know maybe I'll do some checks and see if I can find out um, if they're still active because they are a partner with Alex Shadenberg in um, Coalition Good. Prevention in Canada. Um, also, okay. each state should have a right to life group so check with minnesota right to life and you see if you have one and if they are doing something about it you know check with them well um and if i could share with you i really appreciate that feedback i did reach out to the right to life group and one of the legislators republican legislators um was you know was leading the you know the charge here in the state and he left the senate to really or the house excuse me to focus on this and he said we've 
got, you know, boots on the ground. We're talking to people, and it's the same response. They even went to the Archdiocese in St. Paul in Minneapolis, as I did too, and they said, it's not It's not for us to investigate. It's up to the state. Take your complaint to the state. He said, that's what we were told, but he said, we're not giving up, and that's what I've been told too, but I'm not giving up. But this was Minnesota no, no, right to life? Up. Yes, ma'am. Okay, gotcha. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, good. Yes. I mean, yes. you've, you've touched bases. Um, the only <laughs> other one is I would say, you know, the um, EPC USA. Uh, yes. Um, I've always been written. Okay. Yeah. And, and, you yeah, know, I think and, and uh, shows like yours, Marcia, spreading the word, it, it's so crucial because I, I find, you know, I had an experience this at Christmas during the holidays where with a family member talking about medical assistance and dying and really thought it was only for people who were terminally ill. But again, because, you know, that's what I thought a year and a half ago. So when I started talking about it and saying, look, this is what it really is all about, and I said, look at your nephew here. He qualifies. Well, I've got a big as golf ball saying, what do you mean? Then, you know, it struck him. Like I said, who do we know that don't have a person with a disability or a senior family member with a cognitive impairment? I said, this could happen to any one of them. Somebody could find and out. by the time you find out, in many cases, as Kimberly and I did, um, mm-hmm. it's too late by the time you realize that late. what you've been taught is wrong. And, exactly. and we were so blind and, and so trusting, you know, as your book, Trust No One, because yeah. we had absolutely no clue. No one. Right. No. And, you know, your group, actually, Marcia, um, really opened up my eyes and with my uncle. We care, also care for a 95-year-old uh, senior family member. And um, it really opened up my eyes with being more careful, more cautious, more diligent with the medication that he, he's given. And he mm-hmm. recently had a hospital stay. And it was so strange. That there's something wrong. Actually, we could go today when I went to visit him. I thought, oh, my God, he doesn't have long to live. I went to the nurse, and I said, what's going on? Well, his heart is 95 years old. I said, wait a minute. His heart was 95 years old last week, and he wasn't in this shape. Has something different happened? Is he given different medication? Got to talk to the doctor. I tried to call the doctor. We had to escalate the situation, and we were able to get the doctor to call us. Come to find out, that he was on a medication at home with us that was only as needed, but the label didn't say that on the prescription bottle. It said one in the morning, one at night. So, of course, the hospital was giving him this medication. He couldn't speak. He couldn't walk. He He was not awake. He was not lucid. He was slurring his words. So when we realized what was happening, we begged them, please, discontinue that medication. Luckily, they did. You told me this, but what what was the name of the medication, Joy? uh, Pregablin. Pregablin? Okay. Pregablin. It's it's, uh, another name for it, I guess. Sometimes it helps people to know what the drug was. Yeah. And for him, it was for restless leg syndrome. 
you know, but he's going to take it as needed. And he, he had one pill in seven days with us when it was prescribed. But the hospital gave it to him twice a day. Now, it's not their fault, mind you, but it should have taken so long for someone to get back in touch with us when we said we believed there was a, mis, uh, a medication, misunderstanding, we need, it's urgent, you know, I mean, he's going to die. Exactly. Once he was uh, removed from that, I went to visit him, and I was just as shocked to see how well he was as I was shocked to see him two days prior dying, because I thought, you're not dying here. If he's going to be you know, if he's dying, I want to take him back and I'll get help at home to take care of him. He's not going to die right. in the hospital. No way. Right. But they didn't but notice that. They, they didn't they notice, didn't notice it because it's, you know, he's 95 years old and, you know, a lot of times going into a hospital will take a 95-year-old patient and they will regress and, and they're not necessarily getting them up and moving around, and, you know, they don't take as much time with them. They did follow what the directions said, but it's a shame yeah, yeah. that nobody noticed all of a sudden this, you know, the man was here, and now he's just, you know, tumbled down this cliff and is, you know, in a dying state. Um, oh, yeah. You know, that's, that's and I know that if we hadn't been there. He, he wouldn't have lasted, you know. No, and when we're no, speaking agreed. with the doctor, this is something that I thought was very, mm, my husband and I both thought was a little bit curious. The doctor was trying to recommend DNR, do not resuscitate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And my uncle wants to live. We've had the conversation, and on a regular basis we say, you know, hey, we call him Menonc, for my uncle, in, it's my uncle in French, we call him Menonc. And uh, what do you want? You know, if something were to happen, what do you want? Well, of course, he says, you know, I want to try to stay alive. Okay, we'll, do, we'll make sure that happens. But we were actually encouraged to do a DNR. And we told that, the doctor, that's not we can't surprising do that. to me. That, that's Might not surprising to me. No. It, it was disheartening, you know, because... Mm-hmm. It's not our decision to make, we told the doctor. That's his decision to make, not our decision. Well, We're going to go by what he wants. Well, we in, should in really a lot try of cases, to encourage him. Correct. But in a lot of cases, like um, to go into hospice, they make you sign a DNR, and you're not supposed to call the hospital. But there's a big difference between, you know, if I die naturally, don't resuscitate me, and, oh, I'm going to give you drugs, and you're going to die. I mean, there's a big difference between those two. Yes. So, uh, yeah. Do you remember um, watching the movie? Do you remember watching the movie Mary Kills? No. It it was on television, and it was a woman who would go around – Medical assistance and dying, that's what she was doing. This was several years ago, and I thought that was fiction. <laughs> Not so much fiction anymore. Oh, no. It was a movie mm-hmm. called Mary, Mary Kills, yeah. Well, it must have been I, Lifetime I movie about... because they're always doing that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, all of, every time they go, you know, be a caregiver, the next thing you know, they, they start doing that. Exactly, exactly. So, well, 
could I just share one more thing and then I'll hang up. Um, when you referenced the DNR, thank you. When you were, um, my mother was a full code and did not want advanced treatment, and that's that's the the healthcare directive that she and I created together. Of course, when she was presented with this, you know, horrific diagnosis that basically they implied she had a week left to live, which we all know that's not the case. <clears throat> um, mm-hmm. They based the doctor basically said, you have to sign a DNR, so we have to revoke your full code status, and you have to sign a post, which I was adamantly against. I said, don't do this, Mom. They're going to stop your meds. I said, don't do it. Don't do it. Please don't do it. I begged and pleaded, and she said, Kimberly, I'm terminal. There's nothing they can do for me. I said, Mom, that's not true. But so it does happen. And then, you are, and we were, and then later I found out that she didn't have to review her code status. She could have been oh. in full code and stayed at the facility, at the hospital facility. Now, Medicare told me this. You don't have to revoke your, your full code status to enter hospice. They lied to us, which is not a surprise. Well, I was going to say, because that's what they told us, too, with my mom. Now, that's that post, I just recently posted that um, from Halo voice.org, which is an excellent site for people that are listening, um, their post form that they are warning people about signing. And it's like, you know, a, a neon green or pink form that they put in there. And basically you're giving the doctor control over making your decisions. Correct. And I, I'm not giving anybody control over my decisions. <laughs> so my husband and my son, but, you know, other than that, and that's only if I'm incapacitated. Right, right. So. But I wanted to say, because, you know, because we use those terms, uh, made, assisted suicide, die with dignity, you know, uh, they use all of those terms. And I wanted to, to say here that there is a difference between assisted suicide as far as the terminology goes. And I'm not saying they don't do both, because they do. But assisted suicide typically means a doctor will assist a patient in obtaining the means of dying but will not personally administer them. A doctor may prescribe a patient end-of-life medication but would leave it to the patient whether or not to take it. And some patients, um, as the statistics I found, some of the patients just don't take it. So like the lady I was reading to you about, her aunt, and they had to take the pills and they had to crush them up and do all of that, that is assisted suicide, where on the other hand, euthanasia most often refers to someone intentionally and directly ending someone's life to spare them from pain and suffering, uh, and they inject them with life-ending drugs, pulling the plug on someone on life support, while technically a kind of euthanasia is allowed in many countries, but active euthanasia in which a deliberate intervention is undertaken to end someone's life is illegal, even those that allow physician-assisted suicide. Now, Kim, would you say that hospice is performing this illegal? Yes. A deliberate intervention. A deliberate intervention to end someone's life. Correct. Yes, and ma'am. and you know, we've had cases where people have been injected with the kill shots. That's deliberately mm-hmm. ending their life, and that's what they're saying euthanasia is. And that's why I say euthanasia is being done 
in hospices, and it's interesting that they're saying that assisted suicide, that they give you the medicine and then you go home and you take the medicine. But what if you go, you don't do it quick enough, um, you can't swallow this, or you start having seizures, or you start throwing up, you know, anything could happen. There is no doctor there. No. And, and your family is there, and you've got to be freaking out at that point. Oh, so, my goodness. I cannot imagine. I cannot imagine. No. No. So I want to say, um, go over quickly the process. So on the des- you've gone to the doctor. The doctor has written you a prescription. You have gone. You've picked up the prescription. On the designated day, a patient is instructed not to eat fatty foods for up to six hours. An hour before the process, the patient takes an anti-nausea medicine because the other medicines that follow are very distasteful, as you heard me talking about with the, with the ant. Thirty minutes later, the patient takes dioxin, digoxin, it starts the process of slowing down the heart so that the other medications will work. At the designated time, the patient takes the combination of the remaining drugs, which is mixed with four ounces of liquid and must be drank within two minutes. The law allows family members to hold the cup, but the patient must be able to swallow on their own. If the patient uses a feeding tube, they must be able to push the plunger on the syringe containing the drug cocktail. Similarly, patients who have a gravity feed bag must be able to open the valve or clamp on their own. Now, who's monitoring this and making sure that this is what's happening? There aren't any checks and balances. There are no checks and balances. And of the people... Um, in Oregon has the most information because they, you know, they've been in, you know, progress. They've been doing this for a longer period of time. So there was more information on what they do. And I'm, while I'm talking, I'm looking for that particular page. Okay. So, um they said there's been an, in, an increase with the number of deaths. And the 2020 data summary, as of January 2021, prescriptions were written for 2,895 people and 1,905 died from ingesting. What happened to the other 990 people? It didn't say. But they had a um, their 21 report no, this was uh, 383 patients' prescriptions were written. 219 of them, which is 57%, ingested the medication, and 218 died. One person ingested it but re- regained consciousness before dying from underlying illness. An additional 58, 15%, did not take the medicine and later died of other causes, leaving 106 patients' status unknown. 37 of the 106 died, but not necessarily from the drugs, and 69, they don't know if they're alive or if they ingested the drugs. So there is no follow-up. You you just write a prescription. So for the people that didn't take the drugs, where are those drugs? 
and you know just in their house did they give them to somebody else um it, you know that just there there's just no checks and balances and mm-hmm. in Colorado in 2022 316 received prescriptions which is a 44% increase compared to 2021 and 246 actually got the medicine. They got 316, got prescriptions, 246 received the med, and 243 of those died. So 70 of the people decided not to take the drugs. So they don't have to take them. So they get the drugs, and maybe, you know, for people that feel like, you know, my body, my choice, and I want to, you know, die at the end, I don't want to be suffering, they have the drugs in case they get to that point, but it doesn't appear, well, clearly, everybody doesn't take them. But every state that has this does not have statistics available for you to see what happened, how many have they done, but you can see that the numbers are increasing. And is that because people are being talked into it? I don't know. I, I hope not, but I, I know that it's happening in Canada where they are being encouraged. It's being mentioned, and it's not supposed to be. It's, you know, you're not supposed to encourage or mention medical assistance in dying to anybody. It's supposed to come from the person, from the person themselves. But that is not happening. Now, I have a question for, for Marcia and Kimberly. Now, to know what you know now, what would you have done differently? I, I wouldn't have enrolled my mom in hospice. I agree. Um, I would have. What I wanted to do, Joy, was to take her to Mayo Clinic. Um, a family member got involved and said, oh, no, 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 stay in Minnesota, you'll have excellent care. Um, I would have just... I would have just said, we're going to Mayo. There's no, that way we were out of the town that we're in there, and it's a drive for people. Um, also, too, if I would, I also tried to stop her from going to this facility, but after I did a little digging into it, it's not a safe place. Um, I guess, I mean, I tried to be honest and direct about asking questions, and, and they just, they completely freaked out about it. I, I think that I would try to pull back, and I would be concerned, but I would do my best to talk my mom out of leaving the facility. I just, I, I never wanted her there to begin with. She wanted to come home. So I would, but you know, at the height of emotion and, and the trauma and everything that was happened, I was just like, you know, I was in, you know, I was in. You're shocked. Yeah, that's exactly it. I was in hypercritical mode yeah. and, and concerned about what, and once I got into the facility with her joy and I saw what it was, first of all, the odor was, was overbearing. I mean, I can't even, I, it was horrific. And um, every patient I saw was lying in bed. They weren't up walking around. They weren't interacting with family members. Every single patient in that facility was medicated. I don't believe that every single person, as the nurse told me, oh, it's nap time. It's, it's our quiet time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, then that must be 24-7 that they're napping then. <laughs> they're chemically restrained. Correct. Thank you, Marcia. That's because correct, it's yeah. easier to deal with somebody in that status. And you know what you I know, noticed, Marcia, um, Marcia, and, Marcia and Kimberly, what you've just express those you know in hindsight you can't do anything now you know and you can't beat yourselves up but thank you you when this gets out you're going to help so many other families to make them think and reflect on what maybe they should do before looking into homes or hospices 
or, Thank or you made to do in that direction. Yeah, this, um, when I was doing project management, one of our um, leaders always talked, you know, was when he was training all of us, he talked about Anka. And everybody's like, what is that? And he said, you don't know what you don't know. And that is the problem, that people, you're believing what you're being told, or maybe you haven't been told anything. And when you go to look up hospice, for instance, everything is wonderful and great. Oh, they're so compassionate, and, you know, they care about people. Well, those are lies. So knowing what you know today, which is why Kimberly told her story, which is why I've told mine, which is why you're on, is trying to let the people that don't know know what we went through, that we're trying to protect them and their loved ones from going through the same thing. But what is sad is oftentimes, even when you're saying it, you can lead a horse to the water, you cannot make them drink, and a lot of times they don't even believe us that it happened, Mm. and they think we're trying to find someone to blame and we're just grieving. That's not it. It's not it We're trying to keep you from having to go through what we did because it, it's horrible, Joy. You know, it's what, painful. It's painful. It's very painful. It's heart-wrenching. Um, it is. It's horrendous. And really. I don't think you ever yeah. get over and it. You, no. no, you don't. And what you, you don't. said in, at the beginning was knowledge is power. People need to know their rights. They need to do a little research, ask the questions. They need to speak up. Stand up and do the right thing. Yeah, absolutely. And and the other thing is if your person is in hospital or even if they go to the doctor and the doctor prescribes a medication, don't just get that medication filled and give it to them. Find out, you know, I have um, a very dear friend who called me last night and her mom has been given an antidepressant. And immediately I started looking up, what does it do? What are the side effects? What's going to happen? And I'm like, you know, she's 94. She cries sometimes. Okay, that doesn't mean she needs an antidepressant. Correct. It doesn't. So giving her that can cause all kinds of issues. Don't give some, and you can find out what somebody's being given. Ask for the medical records. If they're in the hospital, ask them, what are they, you know, Joy, you know, with your uncle, y'all had taken the, the prescription bottle in there. But if you come in and you notice there's anything different, what medication did you give them? Get the list of it. You have the right. And for goodness sakes, get a medical power of attorney. You can go to halovoice.org, and they have sample medical power of attorney, and get one that gives you the permission from your loved one to speak for them if they are not able to speak for themselves. But don't just let them have drugs and give that to them and assume that the doctor knows the best thing for them. That's that's so true, Martha. So true. It's spot on. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I have that. You know, I, I, oh, my God, I can't stress it enough. People need to get POA whether it's a power of attorney or substitute decision maker, legal guardianship, whatever it takes, you need to have that. Otherwise, you can't help or speak on behalf of your loved one. They don't have to talk to you, and they won't, no, especially if you're going to ask questions. they don't have to questions. tell you anything. Yeah, they don't no. have to tell you squat. 
And no. you know, as far as Kimberly signing a DNR, um, I think that's a dangerous thing, too. I mean, my dad was almost 94. He died here at our home, and he did not have a DNR, but I had medical power of attorney. And, you know, when he passed, you know, the police showed up, you know, and, and the whole thing. And the first thing they did when they came, you know, the ambulance, and they said, you know, do you have a power of a, do you have a DNR? And I said, no, but I have power of attorney. And I'm like, there is no bringing my daddy back. I mean, it, it's done. And you yeah. know, my dad wanted to go. You know, he 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 was done. Um, and they listened to me. They didn't. You know, it wasn't like, oh, we're going to immediately bring him back. No, they you know could tell that that wasn't going to happen. So just because you don't have a DNR doesn't mean that they're going to come in there and break your loved one's sternum. And you know, start beating That's on right. their chest, That's right. yeah. and they try to scare you and right. tell you that so that you will sign a DNR. Well, you know, we're going to break their chest, and that's going to be really painful. And you don't want us to do that, do you? And you know, you need to sign the DNR. I'm here to tell you they didn't do that. So they lie, they manipulate us, and because we don't know that, we fall into that and just listen to them because. We didn't know, but you know what, Kimberly and Joy? We know now, and we question everything. I do, absolutely. I do now. Yes, yes, yes. And you know the other thing I think that's really important is keep a journal. Just a quick little note in a scribbler, who you know you spoke with, you know, what happened, where did it happen, when did it happen. Keep a journal. It doesn't have to be rocket science, I'm telling you. But I will tell you that two months down the line, that might come and really be of service to you. So when you can mm-hmm. say to the doctor, well, on March 10th, 2022, I spoke with you at this time, at this meeting, and this is what was said. They don't expect you to be keeping notes. That's a good point, Well, Joy. That's very, very true. Some states... You can record, you know, one person, you being that person, um, knows about it. Some states you can record a conversation if you think it's going to get, you know, where you're being told one thing and somebody else is saying something different or you think they're going to go back on it. Um, you can record that. You, it is allowed to record a conversation as long as you are a participant in that conversation. Right. But all states are different. Yes, yes. And all provinces here in Canada are different as well. Yes. But keep a journal. You know, even just little sticky notes on a calendar until you have time to transfer them in a scribbler. I'm telling you, if if I hadn't kept my notes, we wouldn't be making the, the improvements that we're making and the progress that we've made in Ontario. Because what happened to my family will never, ever happen to another family in the province of Ontario because of my son. But he set precedent Timmy, in Ontario. Text me, uh, message me that, um, the, the law that you changed. Okay. What, yes, what the I name send of it is. Court ruling. Yeah. yeah, I'll send you the court ruling. So, yeah. You know, they can't just drop off another person like my son to a family member without going through due process. You know, I mean, it hasn't helped us right now, but 
That's good that you mention that again because um, write to your legislator in your state yes. and tell them what yes. you do want, what you don't agree to, write your legislator. And you may not think it's doing any good, but, you know, do a form email and, you know, just have it. So, like Kimberly, just, you know, keep sending it out and yes. just keep writing them because we vote them in. We can sure vote them out. Exactly. And Sometimes they need to be reminded about that, you know? Yeah. Yes. Yes. So Joy, we, um, we're down to. I'm sorry. We're, go ahead, we're down to under two minutes. That's okay. Um, and oh Kimberly, goodness. I so appreciate you calling in um, and speaking. It it makes it really good when we've got somebody that'll call in and speak and ask questions. So I appreciate that. Um, Joy, thank, thank you. you so much for coming on, and hopefully. Kimberly, you'll. I haven't read her book yet either, so um, that you know that would be good. So when to you do, read please that. get back to me. Yes, and I'd love to have your feedback. Um, yeah. It's raw. And if you if you got it on Amazon, do you know do a review on Amazon? So that's always yes, good. Yes. And yes. Um, I'm next week. I'm going to put Dr. William Toffler's program out there that he did in March of 22 because I think that's excellent. It gives you more information on the drugs that are used. So everybody, until our next episode, thank you so much for joining us this evening. So good night, everybody. Thank you, everybody out there. Good night, Joy. Good night, Kimberly. Good night. Good night. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. La inscripción está abierta en Get Cover, New Jersey. Únete a los residentes del estado que están recibiendo seguro médico económico y de calidad en Get Cover, New Jersey. Nueve de diez personas reciben ayuda financiera y muchos pagan diez dólares o menos al mes. Get Cover, New Jersey ofrece más opciones y más ahorros. Encuentre su plan en getcovered.nj.gov.